Hello friends, and thank you for joining us again for what we're calling a conspiracy of goodness. Playing the guitar and the harmonica, recalling and telling the stories, singing the songs of people of America, Larry Long. Recording the sounds, the stories, the songs of our friends and neighbors, fellow citizens, Brett Hughes. I'm Tom Thibodeau, and today we are going to honor the contemplative life. I will arise and go now And go to Innisfree A small cabin built there Of clay and wattles made Nine bean rows will I have there a hive for the honeybee And live alone in the bee-loud glade I will arise and go Contemplation is the opposite of reaction. How important it is to develop a contemplative life a life that is focused on what is important and significant. The ability just to pay attention. Wherever your attention goes, your energy flows. The poet Mary Oliver is a natural com contemplative. She writes, Song of the Builders. On a summer morning, I sat down on a hillside to think about God, a worthy pastime. Near me, I saw a single cricket. It was moving the grains of the hillside, this way and that way. How great was its energy, how humble its effort. Let us hope it will always be like this, each of us going on in our own inexplicable ways, building the universe. Each of us in our own inexplicable ways, building the universe. The contemplative changes the world. And I shall find some peace there. Peace comes dropping slow. Dropping from the veils of the evening to where the cricket sings Midnight's all a glimmer And noon It's a purple glow And the evenings are filled With the linnet's wings I will arise and go one of my favorite authors is Robert Fulgham, very popular in the 1990s, a Unitarian minister who was able to capture what was significant and sacred and marvelous stories, and one of them is this. Sit still, just sit still, my mother's voice again and again, teachers in school said it too, and I in my turn have said it to my children and my students. Why do adults say this? Can't recall any child ever sitting still just because some, some adult said to. That explains why several sit stills are followed by sit 
down and shut up or shut up and sit down. My mother once used both versions back to back and I, smart mouth that I was, asked her just what she wanted me to do first, shut up or sit down. My mother gave me that look, the one that meant she knows she'd go to jail if she killed me, but it just might be worth it. And at such moment, an adult will say very softly, one syllable at a time, get out of my sight. And any kid with half a brain will get up and go, and then the parent will sit very still. Sitting still is powerful stuff though, and it's on my mind as I write this on the first day of December of 1988, the anniversary of a moment when someone sat still and lit the fuse of social dynamite. On this day in 1955, a 42-year-old woman was on her way home from work. Getting on a public bus, she paid her fare, sat down in the first vacant seat. It was good to sit down. Her feet were tired. And as the bus filled with passengers, the driver turned and told her to move her seat and moved to the back of the bus. She sat still. The driver got up and shouted and said, move it. She sat still. Passengers grumbled, cursed her, pushed at her. Still, she sat. So the driver got off the bus, called the police, and they hauled her off to jail and in history. Rosa Parks, not an activist or a radical, just a quiet, conservative, church-going woman with a nice family and a decent job as a seamstress. And for all eloquent phrases that have been turned about her place in the flow of history, she didn't get on that bus looking for trouble or trying to make a statement. Going home all she, was all she had in mind like everybody else. She was anchored to her seat by her own dignity. Rosa Parks was always going to be a human person and all she knew how to do was sit still. There's a sacred simplicity in not doing something and not doing it well. All the great religious leaders have done it. Buddha sat still under a tree. Jesus sat still in a garden. Mohammed sat still in a cave. And Gandhi and King and thousands of others have brought sitting still to perfection as a powerful tool of social change. Passive resistance, meditation, prayer, all one and the same. It even works with little children. Instead of telling them to sit still, you yourself can sit very still and quiet. And before long, they pay a great deal of attention to you. Students in class are thrown by the silent stillness on the part of the teacher. It's sometimes taken for great wisdom. And sitting still works with the grown-ups on this very same bus route Rosa Parks used to travel. Anybody can sit anywhere now on the buses and some of the drivers are black, both men and women. The street where she's pulled off the bus has been renamed Rosa Parks Avenue. A new religion can be founded on this one simple sacrament. To belong, all you would have to do is sit still. You wouldn't have to congregate on a special day in a special place. No hymns, no do's, no creeds, no preachers, and no potluck suppers. All you have to do is sit still. Once a day for 15 minutes, sit down, shut up, and be still, just like your mother told you. Amazing things might happen if enough people did this on a regular basis. Every chair, park bench, and sofa will become a church. Rosa Parks has died. The memorials to her sitting still are countless, but the best ones are living tributes in the forms of millions of people of every color getting on thousands of buses every evening, sitting down and riding home in peace. I have no doubt that Rosa Parks is in heaven, and I have no doubt that when she got there, the angel looked at her and said, ah, Rosa Parks, we've been expecting you. Make yourself to home and take any seat in the house. All you have to do is just sit still. I will arise and go now For always night and day I hear lake water lapping With low sounds by the shore 
While I stand on the roadway Or on the pavement's gray I hear it in the deep heart's core 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 And in us free I went to school at St. John's University in College, Minnesota, Minnesota, and while I was there, I was struck by the life of the Benedictine monks, a group of men who were living together following the rule of St. Benedict that was written in the fourth century, ora et labora, to work and to pray. And in this community, I learned the importance of a contemplative life, the importance of being silent, of paying attention, of entering into one's own inner core and paying attention to the quiet whisper of the voice of God. I was so drawn to this that I joined a group which was pre-monk training. Once a month we would go worship with the monks, we'd go down and we'd have dinner, and afterward an older monk would talk to us about the monastic life. During this time I became enamored with the life of Thomas Merton, the contemplative from Louisville, Kentucky. John Lewis, when he walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge at age 23, had a backpack on, and in his backpack he had two books. One was a reformer of a democracy, and two was a seven-story mountain, the spiritual autobiography of Thomas Merton. A young John Lewis was looking to find his own spiritual center and looked to this contemplative monk from Louisville. In fact, in the late 1940s, Seven Story Mountain was on the New York Times bestseller list as people came back from World War II were trying to find their place in society. It's interesting, seminaries and monasteries filled up with young men who had been off to war who now look for inner peace. Merton died in 1968, but it's written. Merton's writings, his ideas, his struggles to awaken us to our own interconnectedness resonate as strongly today as they did when he died 47 years ago. In that sense, Merton's impact on us has been profound. In both my first and second inaugural addresses, I shared the thoughts of his 1958 epiphany. For it was here in Louisville, only a few blocks away from where the Festival of Faith is occurring, Thomas Merton had an epiphany on March 18, 1958. It resonates with us to this day. Merton was standing at the intersection of 4th and Walnut Streets, today known as 4th and Muhammad Ali Boulevard, when he was suddenly gripped by an overpowering realization that the busy people before him were not strangers, but were fundamentally connected. Their true natures he wrote, I'll shine like the sun. They were mine and I was there, he wrote in his diary. We are already one, but we imagine that we are not. What we have to recover is our original unity. Contemplation, take a long, loving look at the real and to see in the eyes of another human being, reflection of our own selves. The contemplative is so much needed 
in our society today. Each step I take, each breath I breathe is for not, if not for thee. You know, Tom, 15 years ago, I got a growth on my vocal cords. The doctor advised me to remain totally silent for six months with hopes that I might shrink in order to avoid surgery. One thing I learned through that period is that it takes two to tangle. Simply put, it's difficult to argue with somebody who won't talk back. The fight's over before it even gets started. Another thing I learned is that even in silence, one is in need of community. With that in mind, I sought out places where others as I were taking a vow of silence, including a 10-day Vipassana Buddhist retreat on the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountain range in California. There was no cost to the retreat. Everything was free. At the end of the retreat, though, you could donate as much as you wanted to, as long as you donated it anonymously. We sat on pillows in one-hour intervals for eight hours each day in a large room with 50 other people whom we were instructed never to look at. The first three days were a living hell. All they had us do was focus on our breath, slowly breathing in, and as the air flowed out to feel the sensation from the lightness of the air touching that triangle of skin beneath my two nostrils and upper lip. One thing I learned during that time was that we roughly have 10,000 thoughts per day, and most of those thoughts are negative. By the time that third day rolled around, I wanted to get out of there. I was going crazy. But there was no place to go, no place to hide, because no matter where I turned, there I was. Then on the fourth day, they instructed us to shift our laser focus from the lightness of breath on our upper lip up towards that soft birth spot on the top of our heads. As soon as I did, there was a huge volcanic eruption that poured up through my entire body, from my feet on up to the top of my head in pure, heavenly, orgasmic bliss. Everyone else in the room seemed to be experiencing the same sensation from the pleasurable sounds that began to fill the room. Lift up your hands to that holy place. Fill your life with redeeming grace. And from there, we were instructed to focus this mindful discipline on our entire bodies, moving slowly from the top of our heads down through our groin to the bottom of our toes in the form of a mental body scan. 
And whenever we came upon a blockage or a knot or tension within our bodies, we were instructed to use our mindfulness as a tool to work through each of these blockages, break them apart until they dissipated. For the next several days, that's all we did. And with each knot that vanished, my mind, body, and soul got lighter and lighter. And a true state of bliss began to take hold. Those 10,000 thoughts per day were no longer filled with the negative, but with gratitude of the love for those of whom I love and from those who love me. From Tom Thibodeau, my friend, you suggested that I travel 15 miles southeast of Dubuque, Iowa, for an extended retreat with the Trappist monks at the new Mellory Abbey. The silent psalms of the Psalter sing on this vigil hour the bell tower rings. And these monks, who take extended vows of silence each day, support themselves by making beautiful wooden caskets, which you can flip lengthwise up to make a bookshelf while you're living. And on your dying day, those who remain can flip it back down into a horizontal position to place your remains. While there, I heard a young man from Chicago in retreat, who had just got out of prison. I heard him ask one of the monks, have you ever regretted making a vow of celibacy? To which the monk smiled and laughed and replied, every single day of my life. And then he said, but I am assured that when this life on earth is over, that my soul will rise up and share in the divine nature of God. And when I do, I will not only witness the Big Bang, but will be part of all creation for all time. To share in His divine nature beyond the sands of time. He gave his life, so all might live. He gave his life for me. When you enter into a monastery, there's a little sign on the walls that says, silence is the language spoken here. That seems rather odd until you begin to recognize that silence is the language of intimacy. Think about it, friends, for just a moment. When you're in the presence of someone that you love, and I know that today we're probably speaking to people who have been married for 40, 50, and 60 years, and it's not just the conversations, it's the silence that you understand are sacred. The silence between you in which words are not spoken, but everything is understood. Robert Green, the founder of the Servant Leadership Movement, was a Quaker, he was a difficult interview. He said, I try not to speak unless I can improve upon the silence. How would that change our public and political debates if people would only speak when they could improve upon the silence? My father was an introvert, a contemplative. 
he had a great influence on my life. And my father, like myself, really didn't like parties. He'd go to a party and stand in the corner and maybe talk to one or two people. And people would say, well, Greg, why don't you say more? You're not much of a conversationalist. And he would smile and say, you never have to take back anything you listen to. Isn't there something that's wise and revealed in moments of silence, moments that bridge the gaps in our lives when understanding and love are not cognitive but felt in the silence and the quiet of our own hearts? Silence is the language we speak here today. I talked to God the other day And one thing God made clear You say you love heaven You wanna get to heaven Why don't you have yourself a heaven right here But I wanna get to heaven Sit on a cloud Dance and sing Jump for joy And laugh out loud Don't be silly The good Lord said Heaven's here now Why wait Until You're dead Heaven's no exploitation Freedom from domination Heaven's the beauty of the earth The perfect joy of each new birth Why don't you have yourself a heaven right here? Do away with corporate greed Help those in need Feed the poor End our war And we'll have a little heaven right here We'll have a little heaven right here Right here, right now Right here, right now Let's all have heaven right here. Thank you all for listening to Conspiracy of Goodness with Brett, Tom, and I. Have a great week, and thank you for all that you do. And in the silence, recognize that there is peace and all good until we meet again. You have been listening to Conspiracy of Goodness with Larry Long and Tom Thibodeau, produced and recorded by Brett Hoos. For more information about Larry and Tom, please visit www.larrylong.org and www.tomttalks.com. We look forward to being with you next week. Thank you for listening.